1: presented by Owens Corning. Now, here are Tom and Leslie.
2: Coast to coast and floorboards to shingles, this is the Money Pit Home Improvement Show. I'm Tom Kreitler.
0: And I'm Leslie Segretti.
2: And hey, what are you guys doing? Are you thinking about taking on some home improvement projects? Because that's what we love to do. We do it every day around our Money Pits. Well, practically every day. And it usually goes pretty well. For me, however, it didn't go so well this week. I'll tell you about that later. (laughs) But if you've got a project you'd like to get done, we are here to help give you some tips and advice to do just that. You can reach out to us at 1-888-MONEYPIT or post your questions at moneypit.com. Coming up on today's show, with winter heating bills on the rise, improving your home's insulation is definitely the easiest and least expensive way to get comfortable and lower heating costs. We're going to review the most popular types of insulation for this project, including one that's fire-resistant to over 2,000 degrees.
0: And a serious stove can boost both your cooking powers and your home's resale value. So we're going to share what you need to know if you're looking for one of those brawny commercial beauties in your kitchen.
2: And are you laying your head down on a bed of bacteria every night? We're going to have tips to help you detox your mattress to keep it clean and you healthy.
0: But first, do you need help with your renovation, repair, decorating project? Whatever it is, I'm still considering it. Happy New Year. It's the new year. Two weeks in. I'm allowed to keep all saying right. that, right? You like, can, What's absolutely. the cutoff? <laughs> so for for while, I'm still allowed to wish you all a happy, happy new year and talk about what's on your New Year's to-do list. Let us help you because, you know, 2022, let's get into this calmly. Let's not be so excited like we were for 2021 because with the pandemic on the table, anything is possible. So let us help you keep your house. Let's
2: just all chill
0: out, shall we? (laughs) Yeah, let's focus on one thing we can help you with, which is your house. So give us a call anytime.
2: Again, that number is 888-MONEYPIT. That's 888-666-3974. Or post your questions at moneypit.com and we will get to as many as we can.
0: So let's get started. Joan in California needs some help with a kitchen remodel. How's it going? Yes, well, we haven't started yet and I just need some advice on how to get started
3: do you start with an architect, or what do you do?
2: That's a good question. So planning makes perfect. You want to start with the plan. Now, are you essentially going to replace the kitchen in sort of the same layout that you have right now, Joan, or are you thinking about really changing things up a lot?
3: Well, it's a very small kitchen, and I just want to know how to maximize everything.
2: All right. So if it's a small kitchen... You can probably do this inexpensively by perhaps starting with a home center. A lot of the home centers have designers that work on, the ca- work on designing kitchens for the cabinetry that they sell, and for a very small fee, they can help you lay it out and take advantage of all of the latest options. If you want to do more than that, what you're going to do is hire a certified kitchen and bath designer, but this is sort of like hiring an interior decorator that works just on kitchens and baths, and that's going to cost you a few bucks. But if you want to just do this an easy way, I would start with a home center in the kitchen department and see if they'll lay out some options for you. Uh, using the using the type of cabinets that they sell. those cabinets are usually pretty affordable at that level. And you know you'll they'll be able to give you some ideas on things perhaps you haven't thought about.
0: You know what Joan? I think it's really smart to keep a notepad in the kitchen. And everybody and anybody, yourself and your family who use the space, as you walk through and notice little areas where you're tripping over one another or things that just don't make sense or you wish that you know X was here and not there, sort of jot all of those down so when you do go sit down with whether it's, you know, a certified kitchen and bath designer or someone in the home center, you sort of have all of these issues that could be addressed or might be able to be addressed.
3: One thing I really want is more electrical outlets, so that'll have to definitely be in the plan.
2: Well, it's definitely in the plan and and you know, you'll do these things in order. The first thing you'll do is rip out the old cabinets and the next thing you'll do would be to rough in new wiring and new plumbing. To have it exactly where you want it. And then, of course, you'll start the installation of the new cabinetry as almost the last step. It's also a good time to think about universal design in the kitchen, maybe having countertops of different height. So as you get older, you could sit down and work at the kitchen counter as opposed to just standing up. So think of the, uh, the sort of accessibility issues when you design this kitchen as well.
3: How much uh, time should I allow for something like this?
2: Well, it depends on whether you have sort of all your ducks in a row. Sometimes it takes a while to get all the, the uh, cabinets delivered. But if everything is accessible and on-site, you know, you can tear out this kitchen and rebuild it inside of a week. Oh, wow. <laughs> if you have everybody lined up and everybody's there when they need to be there and, you know, the the plumber shows up on time, the electrician shows up on time and so on, sure, I don't see any
4: reason you can't get it done in a week.
0: Well, thank you very much. Kurgan, North Dakota is on the line with a lighting question. What's going on?
4: Well, I got a quick question on fluorescent lights. You know, a lot of your uh, lights are, of course, rated, you know, 60 watts, etc. My question kind of came in the fact that um, the fluorescent bulb that says this is equal to a 60-watt bulb. But sometimes it's just not enough light. So what happens? Or are you allowed to put a bigger bulb wattage? Because since fluorescents are supposed to be taking less electricity, can a guy put a bigger bulb in there and a fluorescence that says equals to 100 watts? Because it's still drawing less electricity.
2: So. I think what you're talking about here is compact fluorescence, Kirk. Right. So the wattage limitations on fixtures is based on a calculation that involves incandescent bulbs, and, it, and it, because it's because it equates to heat. You know, a 100-watt bulb is going to uh, emit a certain amount of heat, and uh, if the fixture's rated to take that heat. That's, that's what it's rated for, and you can't put more than that. When it comes to fluorescence, you're only using a quarter of the energy. So a 15-watt bulb would deliver, you, deliver the same equivalent of 60 watts of light. You can't have a bulb that delivers the equivalent of a bigger watt bulb, but you're still not actually putting that amount of electricity into it. Does that make sense?
4: Right. So you could actually, like you say, if it's a third, if it's rated for a 60-watt incandescent bulb, you could virtually say if there is a 150-watt bulb in a fluorescent, you should be able to put that in there and not cause an overload and get more light under that same fixture.
2: Yeah, I probably wouldn't double it. <laughs> but I might, if it calls for a 60, I might go up to 100 because then you're moving from saying 15 watts to 25. But I have a better suggestion. Forget the compact fluorescents. They are an outdated technology the LED bulbs it's, are where it's at today. They, they deliver a much better quality light with uh, just the same, if not more,
4: savings. But you know, That was the whole issue. is Sometimes you just don't get enough light out of some of those mm-hmm. fixtures.
2: Right. And I think that if, right, and also they're very temperature sensitive if it's a cold area. like
0: Well, and then they're color sensitive as well. You know, when you get a CFL, you have to pick what color temperature you want that bulb to feel, and they can all feel extremely different. So you might pick something that gives a cold, harsh light, and you want something warmer. So there's a lot of experimenting with what type of fluorescent bulb you're going to get.
4: Well, I'll have to try some different things, but I was just worried about the wattage and making sure I didn't overheat the uh, original fixture.
2: No, you're smart. You're smart to be concerned, but I'd I'd take a look at the LEDs and I think once you start trying them, you'll be be disposing of those CFLs.
4: Well, thank you very much for taking my call. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Good luck with that project.
0: Did you know that Americans take 20,000 breaths a day and spend an average of 90% of their time indoors? That's right. And
2: according to the EPA, the level of indoor air pollutants can be two to five times higher than outdoor air and occasionally more than a hundred times higher. Plus, every spring we get sucked with allergens too. Well, Air Doctor is an air purifier that filters out dangerous contaminants like pollen, pet dander, dust mites, and mold. just go to Aquatrue.com. dot com. That's a q u a t r u dot com, and enter code MONEYPIT at checkout. That's twenty percent off any Aqua True water purifier when you go to Aquatrue.com dot com and use promo code M O N E Y P I T. Money Pit.
0: Jody in Delaware, you've got the Money Pit. How can we help you today? I actually have a problem with my
3: foundation. It's an exposed foundation about three feet high around the whole footprint of the house is exposed. It's a cement block foundation that had parging on it originally and the parging was cracking so it was recommended by a masonry contractor to put dry lock over it. So this is what I did. I put, um, it's a, it, they, they add color to the dry lock, so I put it over the whole foundation, and it started to crack and peel and bubble.
2: Yeah, you didn't adhere properly. First of all, isn't dry lock usually an interior uh, masonry paint, not an exterior
3: masonry paint? Well, this particular masonry guy told me that he's actually used it on the bottom of swimming pools. So he thought that it would work. And when when he saw it later, he said, wow, I've never seen it do that.
2: Yeah. How about that? Just experimented (laughs) with your house.
3: I did call the dry lock people, too. Yeah. And talk to them. And they they told me to try to power wash it, try scraping it. But it's just become like a huge mess. You know, I mean, it peels in some places, some places it adhered.
2: Yeah. The problem is that now that you've got that on there, you've got to get it off because you can't put any, you can't put new stuff over the bad old stuff. It just will continue to peel.
3: Yeah. The problem is, is that uh, we are on um, filled in marshland is where the, is where the, and so we're on clay and sand. And the cement block, you know, it sort of leaches up through there, so it's always sort of ha- sort of damp coming up from the ground anyway.
2: Yeah, that's what I was gonna. Th- that's what I was kind of thinking. I was thinking the block wall might have been wet when you applied it. It might have been visibly wet, but see, those block walls are hydroscopic. They absorb water really, really well. And so, if you if it's on a moist situation, that water is going to draw up, get behind that paint, and nothing causes paint to peel faster than than water. So, unfortunately, at this stage, you're going to have to strip that off.
3: Oh my gosh! And we're right on we're right on the water. You know, what I mean, we're on the bay. So I'm always worried about things that are not environmentally friendly.
2: The other thing that I think you probably could do, and this is a you know this is a big job in and of itself, though. Is you could have a mason attach um, a woven wire mesh to that foundation and restucco it. And in that case, it could go right on top of the old junky paint because you're not really sticking to the foundation, you're sticking to the mesh. So that's another possibility.
3: I gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, cuz I guess in some places that was used before underneath the parging.
2: Well, the parging, the parging is simply a stucco coat that goes on top of the block wall, and it's typical for the parging to crack, and usually it cracks along the lines of the of the of the masonry block.
3: Yep, that's what it did.
2: And that's not necessarily a defect. That's pretty much just the way it goes with that stuff, especially if they don't put it on thick enough. So I would consider, if you really want to have it to look like a traditional masonry foundation, I would consider having mesh put up there and then properly re out. If not, you're just going to have to peel that paint off any way you can. You would, you, I would might take a look at some of the citrus-based uh, paint strippers if you have some that's really hard to get off. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Sorry to have better news. Good luck with that project. Thanks so much for calling us at 888 Pit. Well, with winter heating bills on the rise, improving your home's insulation is definitely the easiest and least expensive way to get comfortable and lower those heating costs at the same time. And it's actually a project that I'm doing right now in my basement and crawl space. Now, of all the choices of insulation that are available today, fiberglass bats definitely the most common. But mineral wool is also gaining in popularity as another great choice and the one I actually decided to use in my case.
0: Yeah, now, Owens Corning makes both products, and if you're ready to get comfortable in your home, here's a few things that you should know. Now, fiberglass insulation has always been thought of as itchy or uncomfortable to handle. Well, just a few months back, Owens Corning released an entirely new generation of fiberglass insulation called Pink Next Gen Fiberglass. Now, this new product is made with advanced fiber technology, and it feels as soft as you guys get this cotton. I mean, it's so super easy for both DIYers and pros to handle. Now it also recovers quickly during installation, which means if you've got to like squish the insulation to get it into a space around a duct or a pipe or some wiring, it's going to expand very quickly back to its normal shape. So you don't have to worry about kind of compressing it to get it in there. It's still going to function really well. And the pink next-gen fiberglass provides excellent thermal performance, which means your home is going to be warmer and more comfortable from the moment you install it. Plus, it absorbs sound, so it's gonna help keep noise to a minimum. I mean, really, all around, this is a great choice.
2: Yup. Now, the other option that's getting in popularity is Thermofiber. Now, Thermofiber is a mineral insulation also made by Owens Corning. It's called Fiber Ultra Bat Mineral Wool, and it's designed to provide excellent thermal insulation, fire resistance, and noise control. And those are all reasons I chose it for my project. I also like the fact that the bats are semi-rigid, because for me, that's going to make them a lot easier to cut around all of the pipes and the wires and the sort of odd structural elements of my 130-year-old floor because I'm doing a floor installation. But aside from my use, Thermofiber is just really a good solid choice because it helps control moisture to prevent mold, and they're non-combustible with fire resistance to temperatures above 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So pretty much you can't go wrong with either one, and whether you want a warmer floor like me or you want to add more insulation to your attic, which frankly most homes in America definitely need more, now is the best time to do the project because you're going to enjoy increased comfort and lower heating bills all winter long. I mean, seriously, when you do an insulation project, there's no delay. You immediately, if it's a chilly room, it becomes a warm and comfortable room. Um, it's so fantastic because it's not expensive and you can knock it out in a single weekend.
0: You'll find Owens Corning's pink next-gen fiberglass and thermofiber ultra mineral wool insulation at home centers and building supply stores nationwide. Or you can learn some more online at owenscorning.com. Robert in North Dakota, you've got the money pit. How can we help you today?
1: I have a friend who's uh, planning on building a, a horse arena, an indoor horse arena, uh, the place where we board our horses. Uh it's going to be a very large arena. I'm sure they're going to inflate it well. There'll probably be some stalls inside, uh dirt floor, so uh for riding. Uh so there'll probably be some bobcats, you know, in and out of there occasionally changing the dirt out. And my question is as far as heating. She's doing some research to try to find the best, uh, you know, cost-effective and efficient way to heat this. Uh so far I think she's kind of narrowed it down to coal. Uh I mentioned to her about solar Uh, I also mentioned geothermal. What, in your opinion, would be the best efficient and cost-effective way to heat this arena?
2: So first of all, uh, when you talk about solar and and coal, you're talking about fuels. What kind of heating system does she want to use?
1: Well, I think I suspect she might be using water. Uh, You know, I'm I'm thinking under the dirt, possibly a water type. uh,
2: Yeah, I don't know how that's possible if you're going to have bobcats driving over that. I would think that's too heavy.
1: What about... um, you know, some sort of uh, blowers.
2: Well, yeah, like a forced air system. I mean, that's probably going to be something in in, in line with that approach. Now, in terms of solar, what I would do is if I was building a barn, I would make sure that I designed it to take advantage of passive solar energy. So essentially, you would design the windows in the barn so that it captures uh, the the sun in the winter and protects from overhead sun in the summer so it doesn't overheat in the summer but but traps some of the heat in the winter the idea of passive solar energy as design concept is something you definitely should look into uh in terms of fuel you know it doesn't the fuel is only part of the equation it's really what kind of system you're going to use so if you were going to use coal i doubt that you're going to be using a forced air system. Okay. You're probably, with a forced air system, I I don't know that I've seen it coal-fired. I've seen forced air uh, with wood fire, and I've also seen wood-fired boilers, where you have a wood-fired boiler that would convert uh, to a hot water coil that air is blown over in the sense it's an air-to-air heat exchanger that way, or a water-to-air heat exchanger.
1: Okay, so you don't think the coal uh, as the energy source maybe somehow work uh, with the forced air combined? It
2: depends on what the heating system is. It's got to be properly matched with the heating system. Okay. If coal's readily available and there's a system that's designed to work with it, then it could be a fine fuel, but it really depends on what the system it
1: is. It is readily available. It's about uh, probably 10 miles down the road from where she's going to build this, right. this facility. Uh, I see
2: why she's interested in it then, yeah. If I was you, I would focus on the system first and the fuel second. And if you want to use coal as the fuel Just make sure you have a good, efficient system in which to
1: burn it. All right. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it and love your show.
2: And, you know, Leslie, people think that just because we're home improvement experts, everything in our home in terms of our projects goes perfectly well. Every single time. So, I thought I'd share a little faux pas I made this weekend. You know, I've been mixing up concrete uh, for a floor in my basement that's hard to get a truck into. So, I'm kind of doing it by hand. You've
0: been working on this for a while.
2: Well, you know, it's, like a, it's sort of like, you know, I could go to the gym or I can go mix concrete. It's the same thing, I'm just getting a good workout out of it. But I'm mixing up concrete and I'm pouring it into like a mixing tray from the machine. And I drag this mixing tray, which I figure with two bags of concrete in it weighs probably, I don't know, 135 pounds or so. And then I lift it up and I just dump it into the form and I just go on my way with the next one. Well, I was getting a little tired in the afternoon. I went to lift this tray up one more time to dump it. And my feet slipped out and I did like a face plant right into the mixing tray, face full of concrete. It was like classic, I don't know, three stooges. (laughs) Kind of a move, like it would have been on one of those old fashioned comedy shows. And I looked at myself and I said, Oh man, look at that. So, what did I do? I took a picture. It was a perfect time for a selfie.
0: Oh my god, please. I will post it. Please I will send post this it on around.com.
2: Please. <laughs> I will own up to that.
0: <laughs> How difficult was it to get out of places? Like was it up your nose? Was it yeah, in your ears? It wasn't
2: terribly difficult. It was just it was just kind of annoying and funny at the same time.
0: <laughs> oh, that's amazing. That is amazing. Can, is there oh my gosh, I wish there was video footage and we could put some silly music to it. <laughs> <laughs> Please tell me you have some sort of security camera in your basement.
2: Not yet. I think think the picture uh, will basically tell it.
0: All right. I can't wait. Well, few things define an upscale kitchen like a commercial range. You know, those heavy-duty cast iron grates, the beefy knobs, the high PTU burners, that pro-style range really has become your home's modern-day hearth. It is the focal point of your house's main gathering place.
2: Well, that's right, because everyone loves to gather around that kitchen, but a serious stove like that can boost your cooking powers as well as your home's resale value. So that's why they're so popular, but if you're going to buy one, there are definitely some things you need to know. First up, an actual commercial range is not really designed for a residential kitchen because commercial ranges don't have the same level of insulation. They get too hot and they can be unsafe. So, how can we have these on the market? Well, what happens is many manufacturers offer a sort of quote unquote pro style range, and they make them scaled to fit standard countertop depths. They have beefed up insulation to keep them safe. And their biggest burners still blast out somewhere around 18,000 to 25,000 BTUs, which is a lot of heat, because a basic range only goes to as far as about 12,000
0: BTUs. Oh, my goodness. That's a lot. Now, most pro-style ranges come in some standard widths of 30, 36, 48, and even 60 inches wide. And the larger width means you're going to get more burners and other cooktop options, maybe like a griddle or a grill, and you're going to have more oven space as well. But that space and all of those bells and whistles come with a hefty price tag. I mean, you can pay anywhere from $3,500 to $20,000 for a pro-style range, depending on the size, the features, the model. So you really got to want to use this.
2: Now, when you install a range that is as big as that, you have to be super careful. The vent hoods... That exhaust to the outside are a must because the more BTUs the range puts out, the more air the blower needs to be able to move. So a lot of times when you're buying the commercial style ranges, that manufacturer will also make a hood for the same Range that will sort of match the BTUs of it. So that's a good source for it. You're also going to need larger gas lines. And of course, you're going to spend more for the gas. Most gas lines um, are going to be around half inch, but sometimes these need a three quarter inch line. And by the way, don't do this. Don't buy the range and then get it to your house and say, "Uh Oh, I can't get it in my kitchen because they're really wide. (laughs) You know, an average doorway is 36 inches wide. If you get a bigger range and it's got you know, knobs and handles and stuff, you may have trouble getting it into the kitchen. So make sure you think through all of that before you actually uh, order the machine.
0: Yeah. And there's a lot of features that you need to consider. You know, some of them offer high BTUs, which is the signature feature of these pro-style ranges. And it's that one or more burners are capable of the super high heating. So if you want to sear or saute or some fast boiling, but you don't want to get too hung up on the number of BTUs because for most home chefs, 18,000 BTUs is plenty hot. Now, also look for something called a low simmer. I mean, this is equally important is that a burner is dedicated to handling delicate tasks like simmering or, you know, if you want to keep like a pot of chili on all afternoon on a low simmer or if you just want to keep like a gravy warm on a low simmer, that's ideal because it will just keep it warm and just sort of simmering but not boiling. So that's an excellent feature to have as well.
2: Yeah, and by the way, you know, there's different types of burners that you can choose from as well. There are closed burners, which are have like sealed components so that none of the, the grease and the grime and the droppings from your cooking get into the burners and kind of clog them up. So a lot of folks love that for the convenience. But if you're like a super gourmet kind of person, uh, you may opt for an open burner because with open burners, what happens is the gas jets will like shoot straight up from the burner. That's kind of like suspended over an opening, and that draws in a lot of air to fuel the flame. And because of that, the pots and pans hit heat really, really fast and evenly. Um, but the spills collect kind of like in a drip pan underneath the burner that's got to be removed for cleaning. So lots of options and lots of things to think about. You know, aside from just the beauty of having one of these gorgeous ranges in your kitchen, you got to make sure that the space is designed right and you choose the right options for your cooking style.
0: Heading over to Ohio where we've got Carol on the line who needs some help making a door fit. I just wondered what's the correct type of blade and saw to use. I need to saw off the bottom of a hollow door to fit in my house because it has narrowed doors more than what other houses
3: have.
2: Hey, Carol. So that's a pretty basic project, and I'm glad you called because I've got actually a couple of tricks of the trade that would help you for this. First of all, you want to take the door off the hinges. That's super important, off the hinges, uh, and then lay it down on a couple of saw horses. Uh, Next... Uh, you want to take some tape, like I would use the blue painter's tape, and you want to put that along the bottom of the door where you're going to cut. Now, a little tip on this. When you have that door flat on the sawhorses, horses, it becomes harder to tell what the top of the door is and what the bottom of the door is. So don't cut the wrong side of the door. But you put the tape across the bottom of that door, and you can draw your line where you want to cut it on the tape. Put the tape on the front and the back. And here's why. Because as you start to saw this, what will happen is the wood will start to chip out along that edge, and it will get rough. And depending on what kind of door this is, you know whether it's made of like a plywood or whether it's solid, You could get some chips and some splits, and by putting the tape there, it protects it and and minimizes that. Uh, In terms of the type of saw, uh, if it was me, I would use a circular saw. If you don't have a circular saw, you can use a fine-bladed cross-cut saw handsaw. Uh, but again, just go very slowly uh, and make sure you stay to that line. Don't rush it or you'll get a really, really rough cut. Now, one more thing. I don't know how much of this door, how sh- much shorter you want to make this door, but because it's a hollow core door, there's going to be, I'd say, I don't know, what do you think, Leslie? Three inches of solid wood in the bottom of that door. And after that, it's going to be hollow.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, what do you have to fill in? Like, do you need to put in a piece of something?
2: Yeah. If she cuts too much, you're going to find that it's going to actually be hollow. So here's what I would do. If I cut through it and it was hollow, you're going to have to fill that back in. And the best way to do that is to take that chunk of wood that you just cut off and remove the facing of the door from both sides. What will be left will be the filler and just fit that in the space that you pulled it from. Uh, And then you're going to have to glue it and clamp it or just nicely tack it in place with a couple of brads while you glue it. Uh, And then when it's all done, dry, uh, sand it, and then make sure you paint it and seal it because that's an open, now exposed edge. You want to seal that, otherwise you'll get kind of weird, maybe some weird warping of that door. So you want to make sure you finish that bottom edge as well. All right, so good luck with that project. Well, for all the time we spend on them, most of us give our mattresses very little care, which means they get a shortened lifespan and they can even have a risk of illness.
0: Yeah, you know, that's right. If you don't take some steps to keep it clean, you could be sleeping on a bed of bacteria. So to keep germs away, you want to invest in a mattress cover. Now, not only is a cover going to protect your mattress from dust and dust mites, but it's also going to ward off bacteria.
2: Now, let's say you're all cozy in your mattress one night and you happen to spill maybe your water or maybe it's coffee or tea while you're watching your movie. Well, whatever happens, don't soak it. Instead, spray on a solution of mild dish soap and water, scrub it with a soft brush and blot it with a dry towel and then just let it air dry from there.
0: Yeah. Now, every three months, you want to alternate between rotating and flipping your mattress. If you're going on vacation, let your mattress do the same. You want to strip your bed before you leave town and give your mattress a nice dose of sanitizing fresh air and sunlight.
2: And lastly, one thing you really don't want to do is to use dry cleaning agents on your mattress. Some people have advocated these, and I really disagree with them because the chemicals in these spot removers can be harmful to the fabric and underlying materials not to mention the fact that i don't want to be laying on something that had dry cleaning chemicals on it and sucking that in all night long it just doesn't seem like a very pleasant experience
0: we've got lewis from pennsylvania on the line who's looking to replace a relic what's going on
1: i was wondering about who makes the best reliable pilot lighted gas water heater. I'd like to buy one of those. We had one years ago that was very good. It was a stainless steel with the stone lining. It, it lasted like 45 years or so, and I'd like to find something that would last a long time.
2: Wow, 45 years. I mean, <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard of a water heater that lasts 45 years, and I don't think you're going to find another one.
0: Maybe you shouldn't have it last 46 years. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: Um, you mentioned a pilot light. I mean, frankly, the, the, what you should be looking for today is a more efficient water heater, that probably is going to have electric ignition. You don't necessarily need a pilot light anymore, and you're better off with electronic ignition because uh, what's going to happen is that's going to heat up and light the burner when it needs to with a standing pilot light. All these is going to get dirty and have to be clean and require more service. So if you want to use a tank water heater, a tank water heater, um, I would look at the ream water heaters, had very good success with those. You know, in the 20 years I spent as a home inspector, I got a sense as to which ones lasted and which ones didn't. And also, Rheem has a technology now that uh, prevents leakage if the water heater was ever to fail. It actually shuts the supply down valve down automatically. Um, the other thing you should definitely be looking at is a tankless water heater. Um, we put one in our house about almost a year ago now, and I've just been super happy with a constant supply of hot water, never run out. Um, Ours is a combi, which means it does the house heating through the the radiators and the domestic as well. But if you have a hot air system, you could just use a tankless water heater. Uh, And you'll find that those units are probably going to go a good 20 years, I think. So I think those are your two options uh, for upgrading that old relic of a water heater that you got now.
0: And, you know, be so thankful that there hasn't been any issues all this time.
2: Yeah. (laughs) 45 years. I don't think that machine owes them a cent.
0: Beth wrote in, and she wants to know if she can tile an outdoor porch. She says, I have some tile that would be cool on my porch and sidewalk in front of my house. I've never heard of tile on a sidewalk, but she says, can I do that, or would it be too slippery?
2: There's no reason that you can't use a ceramic tile in an outdoor unconditioned space as long as you have the same type of solid installation you would have inside. So you mentioned a porch you know, it would have to be an awfully solid porch. Uh, The base would have to be prepared properly for the tile to wear properly there and not crack and buckle and so on. But the more important issue is the slipperiness of that tile. Now, when you purchase tile, there is a number called COF, which stands for coefficient of friction. And what you're looking for is a coefficient of friction of 0.6 or greater because that means it's generally slip-resistant. Uh, zero is totally slippery. So everything, the, the, the slip resistance goes up as the number goes up, and you want to go 0.6 or greater. So if the tile you have is rated with a COF of 0.6 or greater, you're okay to use that outside. If not, you definitely should not because it would be super slippery.
0: Now, Beth, when you talk about sidewalk, it's funny because Tom and I are thinking like, When you say sidewalk, I'm thinking the part that belongs to the village or my town or the city that's in front of my house that everybody utilizes. And I know Tom has like a sidewalk that's like a walkway from his house to that city village sidewalk. So if you're talking about something more like Tom has and it's slip resistant, then go for it. But if it's more like what I have where the sidewalk is what everybody uses and it belongs to the village or the town, I don't think you can do anything there. I think you're kind of you know, stuck with whatever that village or municipality says, hey, this is the sidewalk material. Regardless of slip resistance, you got to go with what they want.
2: All right, Lori is next. She says, we had a tub surround installed about 15 years ago, and the wood frame of the window on the bottom ledge of the framing has rotted away and looks horrid. (laughs) In capital letters, exclamation point, we get it. She says she wants to have the whole thing torn out and redone, but she wants to know if there's an inexpensive fix. So, Leslie, I'm thinking about um, that product from Abitron that is called uh, Wood Epox.
0: Oh, where it kind of makes the wood like an epoxy rather than like a more organic material.
2: Yeah. Basically, it's like putty, and you mix it together, and it's very lightweight. I always think it's like sort of liquid balsa wood when you're handling this stuff. But you mix it together, and you press it in place, and you let it dry. And then what you can do, Lori, is you can actually sand it or chisel it or grind it, or whatever it takes to kind of get to that shape of the sill of the part that rotted out. But you definitely want to do that because the longer you wait, the worse it's going to get and may become a point where it's not repairable with a product like wood Pox. But you can find Woody Pox at Amazon.com. And the company, again, is Abatron A-B-A-T-R-O-N, that makes it.
0: Yeah. And if it's time to replace that window, definitely think about PVC trim.
2: This is the Money Pit Home Improvement Show. Thank you so much for spending a bit of your day with us. Hey, if you guys have been enjoying the show and you're thinking, hey, I got a question about my house. I got a question about a project. I know that my mom's got a problem and I don't know how to help her fix it. Um, I want to do this or that in the spring. Whatever is leading you to improvements of your home or the home of a loved one or a friend, You can always reach out to us 24-7 and ask for advice. You can post that question at MoneyPit.com or you can call us at 888-MONEYPIT and we'll get back to you the next time we produce the program. I'm Tom Kreitler.
0: And I'm Leslie Segretti. Remember, you can do it yourself. But you don't have to do it alone.